Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we, as we turn our attention to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the worship that we've just been singing, singing of your redemption, your rescue in Christ Jesus, reading about it in your word. We thank you and, and praise you that there is forgiveness and atonement in Christ. Lord, we lift up our time together now in, this, in your word, and we just ask and pray, Lord, for you to be at work by the power of your Holy Spirit. We know, Lord, that no work will come, no fruit will come apart from your Holy Spirit at work in us. And so we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 21, so turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21. And I want to mention right up front that our text today deals with uh, innocent bloodshed. And the principles of our text have a broad application. For example, we could make application to the murders that are happening in Chicago through gang violence. There are many innocent people who are being killed. We've already uh, covered murder in the Sixth Commandment sermon, and we applied it broadly in that place. You can find that sermon online at Sermon Audio. Look for the Sixth Commandment if you just go to the Deuteronomy series. Today, we are going to look more narrowly at how the principles of our text apply to abortion. Like Pastor Jonathan said, two weeks ago was the Sanctity of of Human Life Sunday. It's been 50 years since Roe, and we praise God that that horrific, flawed, unjust, evil ruling has been overturned. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yet we all know, you and I know, that the fight for life is far far from over. The place that people are having abortions may have changed. The methods being used for abortion may have changed, but babies are still being murdered by the thousands every day in this country. Statistics on abortion are difficult because we only know what's reported. But estimates for our state, Illinois, in 2020, the most recent statistics, were estimated at around 52,000 abortions a year. Illinois has become a destination state since the overturning of Roe. So you can see these states highlighted here uh, in purple, including Ohio. It's a very light purple. These are all states that in 2020 came, people from these states came to Illinois Uh, to have abortion. Kurt Wiggins, the president of Caring Network, estimates that that number, that 52,000, that 50,000 number will increase by 30,000 abortions because of the overturning of Roe with people coming here to have abortions. Now, the trouble with stats is that they're just numbers. They're impersonal. But every one of these is a child. It's a precious life, a person made in God's image. 
And if we're going to live a consistent biblical worldview, which teaches us that life begins at conception, then the pills that kill babies are also abortion. They equally end the life of a human being. Just because it happens earlier in a pregnancy or without surgery, it is no less offensive to God. It's still the destruction of a human made in God's image. So we have a long, long way to go to stem the tide of innocent blood. How do we respond to the shedding of innocent blood? The message for us today is, as it relates to abortion, reject apathy and resolve to act. Reject apathy and resolve to act. Do what is right in the sight of the Lord. We're going to see six principles from our text today, and we'll close with a, a charge to act. But first, I want, to, I want to begin with a couple of preliminaries. As Christians, we believe that life begins at conception, at fertilization. That's true both scientifically and biblically, which is most important. In Psalm 139, 13 through 15, David says to God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So we're not just physically created, we're personally created. David is saying, God knit me. My frame was not hidden. I was made. We are persons from the start. And even before we existed, God knew us. God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah is a person in the womb, already known by God. In Luke 2.44, when Mary visits Elizabeth, she is pregnant with John the Baptist. She greets her and The baby leaped for joy in Elizabeth's womb. Joy is an emotional response of a human person. The consistent testimony of scripture is that life and personhood begin at conception. And what scripture says is most important, but science confirms this, that human life begins at conception or fertilization. It's at that moment Egg and sperm meet, a zygote is formed, that single cell, that moment is the creation of a new, genetically unique human being. Before that moment, that person with their unique DNA did not exist. And from that moment on, they do. And the fact that the unborn cannot survive on its own doesn't remove personhood. Toddlers cannot survive on their own, and yet we don't say that they're not Persons, they're still persons. You don't turn into a person simply by getting older or bigger or smarter or more capable of caring for yourself. A person's a person no matter how small. Amen? The sanctity of human life is not based on a person's size or level of development or environment or degree of dependency. Human life is sacred and it should be protected because we're made in God's image. So in Genesis 9, 6, we read, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. All human beings have intrinsic, they possess this, it's not something we grant to them, they have it in themselves, they have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth because we are made in God's image. That is why life is sacred and should be protected. It's why shedding innocent blood is so serious. And when I say innocent in this sermon today, I don't mean innocent in the sense that there isn't a sin nature. I mean innocent in the sense that they've done nothing deserving of death from someone else. 
Now, let's set a little bit of the context for our text. In Deuteronomy 19, God established these cities of refuge for for those who accidentally kill someone, verse four, Deuteronomy 19, verse four. They don't deserve to die because it was not premeditated, verse six. The goal of that law was to to prevent shedding more innocent blood and to prevent the, the bringing of the guilt of bloodshed upon them, verse 10. However, if it was an intentional murder, then the elders of the city shall not harbor that person, but turn him over so that he may die, verses 11 and 12. Because murder is a capital offense. God adds, your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Verse 13. Two points here. He says, you shall not pity the person guilty of murder. We are not more merciful than God. We cannot be more merciful than God. Nor can we be wiser than God in our ways. And second, He says, you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood. How? It's by this capital punishment. Why? So it will be well with you. This idea of purging blood guilt for murder is going to come into play again in our own text. Now, Deuteronomy is a book of law, of ethics. It teaches God's people how they're supposed to live in the promised land. In effect, God is saying this to his people. If you love me, live this way. And it's full of all these different scenarios. If this happens, then this is what you're supposed to do. And we see one of those scenarios in our text today. I'm going to make six observations about it and apply those principles to abortion, our responsibility and our response to the shedding of innocent blood. So look at verse 1. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it's not known who killed him, then this is what you must do. So this law is addressing what to do when someone is murdered, but you don't know who killed them. Perhaps they investigated, but they couldn't find the guilty party, but it's not enough to leave it at that. Why? Because shedding innocent blood defiles the land and it brings blood guilt on the people. It invites God's judgment, his wrath against sin. And this is our first observation and principle. Shedding innocent blood brings God's judgment on a people. This remains true today. We see this in the prayer, verse 8. Look down to verse 8. Accept atonement, they pray. Accept atonement for your people, Israel. Do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel. This local murder brought blood guilt on the nation as a whole. The purpose here is so that God does not hold the shedding of innocent blood against them as a people. As the explanation in verse 9 makes it clear, so you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. This is so that they don't face God's judgment as a people. Like God judged the Canaanites for the abomination of child 
sacrifice, among other sins. We saw that in Deuteronomy 18, 12. Shedding innocent blood brings blood guilt on the nation. There are some sins that are so bad, so heinous, that in a sense, the whole nation is responsible before God. Such is the case with abortion. For the past 50 years, half a century, we as a nation have allowed, with legal protection, the murder of over 64 million innocent children. If you watch the game, the Super Bowl tonight, State Farm Stadium holds between 60 and 70,000 people, 65,000 people. I want you to imagine a thousand stadiums full. A thousand stadiums full. That's how many babies we've aborted. Their blood, like Abel's blood, cries out to God for justice. And the place to begin is with repentance. Either repentance for what we've done or for what we have failed to do in failing to fight abortion or to help women. Our apathy, our indifference. And then to take action, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remorse, just feeling bad today is not enough. This one murder required the whole community led by the leaders to take action. And that leads us to observation number two. God expects his leaders to lead the way in responding. Innocent blood has been shed by an unknown criminal. If that happens in response, verse two says, then your elders and judges shall come out. And after that, they're gonna make a sacrifice. We'll, we'll look at that in a minute. Verse five then says, then the priests shall come forward. And in verses six and eight, we see the elders testifying and praying before God. Now, I just want you to see this principle. God expects his leaders to lead the way in responding to innocent bloodshed. The elders, judges, and priests are all involved. And we saw the same principle already in chapter 17, verses 8 through 13, and chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. God's Leaders have a responsibility to take action in leading the response to bloodshed, be it accidental or intentional. The elders and judges and priests, they're supposed to help God's people understand this and respond appropriately. They're to teach God's people God's perspective so they respond God's way. And the primary leaders of the church today are the pastors and deacons. This principle then requires that pastors engage and lead their people in responding to abortion. Sadly, many pastors are not willing even to speak about this subject from the pulpit. The common objection is that they don't want to be political or ideological, but this doesn't make any sense. Do we not want to train our people with a biblical worldview? Moreover, think about marriage paying taxes, the role of civil government, gender, and many, many more issues are all addressed in God's word and every one of them 
is political. If pastors are gonna faithfully preach the whole counsel of God, then teaching and equipping God's people on abortion must be on the list. Some are worried about offending people, but our job isn't to worry about offending people. Our job is to worry about offending God. If we don't address this, then we fail to bring the healing and the forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people who desperately need it. Amen, somebody. I'll come back to that later. But I want you to notice here that there's also a responsibility placed on civic leaders here. And while we are not a theocracy like Israel was, nevertheless, the New Testament teaches that all governing authorities are servants of God. They're called on by God to govern according to his will in his word. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Do we believe that God is really their authority? That they have an obligation to punish wrongdoers and approve of what is good? Romans 13, three and four. Good as God defines it, not as they define it. They're supposed to punish evildoers, but currently they're protecting evildoers by allowing people to kill their child or hire someone to do it for them. Now, full treatment of Romans 13 is a sermon for another day. The point is that all governing authorities are under God's authority. And who's gonna tell them of their duty to God if Christians who have God's word will not? Moreover, in America, we the people are blessed with governing authority, and that means that we are all responsible before God to act. This leads us to observation three. God expects we take responsibility to address the bloodshed nearest to us. Our pro-life effort should begin nearby. We see this in verses two through four. Look there with me. Then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there. So they're supposed to calculate the distance to establish who has jurisdiction. The city that was closest had to take responsibility for that death. The elders of that city were to help the people take responsibility for the shedding of innocent blood in their area. And one of the principles then that we see in this passage is this principle of proximity. We've seen this principle before in Deuteronomy. We, we saw it with giving in Deuteronomy 14, 28 and following. There's this emphasis on giving to those within your towns. Every third year, the tithe was stored so that the Levite, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan in your towns would be taken care of. In Deuteronomy 15, seven, the debt law focused on the brothers in your towns. Deuteronomy 16, 18, they were to appoint judges to judge righteously and without partiality the evil in your towns. 
And all of the people who lived there were also involved. Deuteronomy 17, 7. We see this principle of proximity again and again in the scriptures. In biblical theology this morning in Sunday school, we talked again about this principle. God has a global mission to bring the gospel to the nations, but where does he start? With your family. He gives this mission to Abraham. You're gonna be a blessing to the nations. Here's how I want you to do it. Teach your children. So you see this principle of proximity again and again in the scriptures. And we see it in addressing the shedding of innocent blood. That's one of the areas. This means that our pro-life efforts should begin nearby. This is how God divides up the labor. The summary ethical principle is love your neighbor as yourself. And it starts with those who are closest to us. So we have a greater responsibility for the poor in our area. We have a greater responsibility for the evil of being done in our area. We have a greater responsibility for making disciples of those in our area. This is how God divides the labor. It's like Nehemiah. Every person built the wall in front of their own house. God wants us to engage locally on this issue of abortion. We've got a special obligation to do everything we can to help those nearby. That means doing whatever we can to help women materially, spiritually, to support local pro-life groups, to stand outside our local abortion mill and to preach the gospel and to plead for the lives of children, to rescue those who are being led to slaughter in our area, to help mothers and fathers in our area. And I'm not saying our responsibility ends with those nearby, but that's where it starts. And our responsibility is perhaps greater in Illinois because this is a destination state for abortion. Now we're appalled at the churches in Germany that shut their eyes to what they knew was happening next door. Is this any different? We have a responsibility to act since we know abortion is happening all around us in our own cities. God has placed you where you are at this point in history to do the good works he has prepared for you. Amen? Fourth observation in principle, God teaches those who shed innocent blood are guilty of a capital offense. We see this in this unique sacrifice that's being made in verses four through six. I want you to notice, this is not a Levitical sacrifice. There's no altar. There's no blood. They just break its neck. And it's being done by the elders of the city, not the priests. The priests are only called in afterwards to fulfill their role in rendering a decision, a judgment in the case of homicide or assault. We saw that in Deuteronomy 17, eight through 13. So verse five tells us, by their word, the word of the priest, every assault shall be settled. This is not a normal sacrifice. So what is this? This was a symbolic judicial execution where the cow is killed in place of the murderer who could not be found. Now, if that murderer is found, then they would bear their own guilt. Remember in Genesis 9, 5 and 6, God says, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Murder is a capital offense. 
It's why in Deuteronomy 19, if you killed someone intentionally, you were not allowed to stay in a city of refuge. You were not allowed to be protected. The elders of the city were to turn the guilty party over to the avenger of blood so he may die. Verse 12. But what if the guilty party couldn't be found? In that case, Deuteronomy 21, the elders of the city are to break a heifer's neck. Then verse six, they're to wash their hands, wash their hands over the heifer. And verse seven, testify to two things. One, our hands did not shed this blood. And two, nor did our eyes see it shed. The symbolism here is clear. The crime deserved to be punished as the cow's broken neck indicates and the hand washing shows they were innocent from the guilt attached to the crime. This ritual then has the effect of atoning for blood guilt. Murder is a serious sin. It brings God's judgment and it's punishable by death. Those who shed innocent blood are guilty of a capital offense. And the Bible teaches equal protection under the law for the unborn. In Exodus 21, 22 through 24, we read this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Harm to whom? Either of them. The mother or the baby. It's crucial for us to see that God considers the unborn baby a person with value and rights that deserve to be protected under the law. He gives them equal protection under the law. These are our preborn neighbors whom we must love as ourselves. As this flyer from the Foundation to Abolish Abortion says, equal protection means that the same laws that protect these people should protect these people. That's what it means. The law is a tutor, it teaches. Equal protection laws would teach that the unborn are persons with value and that it's wrong to intentionally kill them at any time, thus discouraging women from abortion. Equal protection laws do not single out the mother, but they prohibit everyone from murder. It does not allow an exception for pregnant mothers to kill their baby in the womb. Equal protection secures the right to life for all people. The implication for legislation is that it also means women should not automatically be treated as victims or protected from prosecution. Now in states where abolition bills have been put forward, the bills were defeated, but not by pro-choice people but by pro-life organizations. Why? Because many in the pro-life movement want to treat all women who've had an abortion as victims automatically. That makes women out to be too weak or too ignorant to know better. But many women know exactly what they are doing. And in our day, I believe that most know. Hence the guilt and the shame that follows. 
But say there are some women who act under genuine duress. Equal protection laws would allow a case-by-case examination. But if you automatically determine all women are victims, you are prejudging the case. This perverts justice and shows partiality. Worst of all, making women victims cuts them off from the gospel. Victims do not need to repent. Sinners do. If we tell someone, your sin is not your fault, we are telling them they do not need to repent. What should we tell them? Confess your sin. Admit what you have done. And then look to Christ. The only path to healing and forgiveness is by confessing sin and looking to Christ who paid the penalty for our sin even the sin of murdering your own child. And that leads us to observation five. God teaches us to seek his gracious atonement for bloodshed. The law is a tutor, and one of the things it teaches us is to seek God's gracious atonement for bloodshed. We see this in verses eight and nine. The elders pray, accept atonement, O Lord, Or as the CSB puts it, Lord, wipe away the guilt of your people Israel whom you have redeemed and do not hold the shedding of innocent blood against them. Then the responsibility for bloodshed will be wiped away from them. So the leaders are told to pray that the Lord would accept atonement. That is, that God would forgive, that he would cancel, that he would wipe clean the sins that had been done. Now, any benefit of this ritual does not lie in the ritual itself, but in God's grace and mercy. They pray on the basis of God's redeeming work, and they pray that God would act graciously in forgiving them. This ritual is about satisfying the demands of justice, Jesus is the one who made the perfect and final atoning sacrifice for sin. His death satisfies the demands of God's justice, paying the penalty for our sin. His death demonstrates God's love in rescuing us from sin. Praise God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to rescue sinners like you and me. His shed blood on the cross is the payment for my sin and yours. Abortion is a sin, and just like all sin against a holy God, it deserves God's wrath. The hope and glory of the gospel is that there is forgiveness, atonement for this sin, like all sins. Jesus' blood speaks a better word to us than the blood of Abel, Hebrews 12, 24. The blood of Abel cries out to God from the ground for punishment. The blood of Jesus cries out to God from the cross for pardon, for forgiveness. Jesus died and rose again so that anyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith and trust in him will be forgiven for their sins and receive eternal life. 
Christ is our only hope in life and death. He's the only way, the only way to be cleansed from sin and free from condemnation and welcomed to heaven. If we confess our sin, God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you, Romans 8, 1. It's important that you remember these truths if you've gone through this, but even as believers, when Satan comes and accuses you and tries to get you to doubt God's love for you, God's grace covers your sin. The record of your debt, your rap sheet, if you will, has been canceled, nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.15. You are forgiven and loved and treasured by God. That's who you are. And none of that is to, to minimize what has happened, the significance of it, or the pain, or the guilt, or regret that you've experienced. It's simply to declare what God has done through Jesus Christ to forgive you and make you his own. So look to Christ in repentance and faith and be cleansed of your sin. Repent of any participation in the shedding of innocent blood and repent of any indifference to it. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and genuine faith always produces good works. Genuine faith always bears fruit in keeping with repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this leads us to observation six. God teaches shedding innocent blood is a preeminent moral crisis. The involvement of the elders and judges and priests shows how serious this matter is to be taken. It's a drop everything and address it kind of an issue. Christopher Wright, a commentator, said this, it's often when the Old Testament seems the most culturally remote from us that we need to pay the closest attention to its challenge. What ought to strike us from this law is not the oddity of a cow with a broken neck, but the expected response of a whole community through its civic, judicial, and religious leaders to a single human death. Look at what God requires for a single human death. Abortion kills thousands of people every day. There's no other issue like it in our country. Wright goes on to say, in our society, a violent death has to be particularly gruesome or shocking to become newsworthy, let alone a matter for public penitence. We've lost not only any concept of corporate responsibility for blood guilt, having rejected a sovereign moral God to whom we might be corporately responsible, but we have increasingly lost any sense of the sanctity of life itself. The shedding of innocent blood is a preeminent moral crisis. Let me go back to our stadium illustration. Imagine that a terrorist blew it up and everyone in it died. That would be a tragedy that would dwarf 9-11. It'd be 21 times greater 
It would dwarf the tragedy of 9-11 if that happened. Now imagine that happening 12 times this year. Not once, 12 times. That's how many babies are gonna be killed through abortion this year. Abortion is the preeminent moral crisis in our country. There's nothing greater. There is no comparison. It is the greatest injustice. And the more vulnerable a person is, the greater the moral demand and the greater priority there is to protect them. That's why there's such an emphasis in the Bible and in Deuteronomy on the weak and the widows and the orphans. It's why child sacrifice is such an abomination. But there's no one weaker. There is no one more vulnerable. There is no one who has less of a voice and cannot speak for themselves than the child in the womb. So we have to prioritize pro-life ministry. One of the effects of this strange law is to press home the sacredness of human life and the need to act. When a stranger dies, we're tempted to just ignore it and go on with our lives because we don't have any personal connection to them. That's why the leaders have to teach God's people God's perspective so they respond God's way. Now, they might not have known this person, but their death affects everyone. So we dare not diminish the significance of life, the significance of the fight for life, and the need to resolve to act. And so that's where I want to conclude. I want to conclude with an appeal to action. We're called as Christians to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen? We're called as Christians to do unto others what you would want done for you. Amen? These examples are adapted from a pamphlet by the ministry Rescue Those. Let me ask you, if you, right now, you yourself, were being dehumanized and it was legal to murder you, would you want folks to try to regulate when and where and how you could be murdered? Or, Would you want it made illegal to murder you, period? Do to your unborn neighbor as you want done for you. If you were literally right now being hauled to a place where someone was going to kill you, like the unborn when they're taken to an abortion meal, Would you want someone to say, you know what? I don't think standing outside is an effective strategy. Or would you want them to go there and do all that they could to plead for your life while preaching the gospel? Do to your unborn neighbor as you would want done for you. If someone could walk into a pharmacy right now and buy a drug that they could use to kill you without penalty under the law, a drug that would poison you or starve you to death, what would you want your neighbor to do for you? If someone was gonna cut off your limbs and crush your skull or use a machine to grind you to a pulp, what would you want your neighbor to do for you?
do to your unborn neighbor what you would want done for you. Do not shut your eyes to the horrors of abortion. Our text teaches us to take responsibility and act. So make two resolutions. Resolve not to shed innocent blood and resolve not to ignore it, but to act. How? What, what can you do to take action to defend life? You may not do all of these yourself, but you will do some of these. And as a church, together, we should be doing all of these things. Number one, pray. We need to pray for the end of abortion consistently, fervently. And every one of us can do this. We're not going to overcome this or anything else apart from the work of God. Amen? Second, give to pro-life organizations. Give, it will move your heart. We're gonna do our baby bottle drive again this spring, but for the next month, we're doing a, a diaper drive for Caring Network. They reached out to us and asked if our church would be willing to help. So I said, yeah, of course. They need diapers and wipes and lotion. There's a list on the resource table of all the things that they need. This is for women who are contemplating having an abortion, but to be able to say, look, we will walk alongside you. We will help you. Give to ministries working to establish equal protection laws like the foundation to abolish abortion or rescue those or end abortion now. Third, education. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The more that people know, the more likely they are to oppose abortion and choose life. Tied to this is number four, evangelism and discipleship. Ultimately, only God can change a person's heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? Fifth, political action. Vote for candidates who are actually going to protect life. Work to pass legislation that's pro-life, especially advocating for equal protection under the law so that there's no injustice or partiality in judgment. Sixth, volunteer. Give time to serving at a pregnancy center like Caring Network. Become a counselor. Seven, Sidewalk counseling, plead with women as they enter the clinic. Right at the front lines, pleading for life, pleading for the life of their baby, proclaiming the gospel to them. This requires both courage and compassion at the same time. I am so thankful for Landon Thompson. He has been spearheading this ministry, this particular ministry at GFC. For the last eight months, he's been doing this, and a few of us have joined him in this work, and he's gonna tell you more about that during announcements and how you can get involved. Eight, adoption and foster care. We've gotta step up as a church and be willing to care for these babies, raise these kids, and finally, compassion ministry. 
ready to care for both the mother and the child, supplying needs, building supportive relationships, providing housing, and so on and so on. Caring Network knows that we are ready to do this to help women in crisis pregnancy. God says this, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. How should you respond to the shedding of innocent blood? Reject apathy and resolve to act. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray first that you would forgive us. We confess our sins in this matter. Some in participating, but most in our apathy and indifference, in our inaction, and we pray your forgiveness, and we pray your forgiveness for what we have done as a nation. We need your mercy, your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would move in each and every one of us, not just with remorse, but move us to act. Move us to act. Lord, we want to see lives saved. We want to see people come to Christ. People find forgiveness and healing in Christ. Oh God, give us the boldness. Give us the strength. Not in ourselves. Only in you. And all for your glory, God. We ask that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.